From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, we break down what the new statewide mask mandate means, from exceptions to enforcement. Then, the social turmoil that engulfed Colorado and the nation 50 years ago still resonates in many ways today. From court-mandated busing to desegregate schools, to a ban on the racist practice of redlining communities, We'll talk with two men who grew up in the same neighborhood about how that continues to influence their lives today in a moment of renewed focus on inequity and unrest. Also today, what impact is Colorado's Neil Gorsuch having on the highest court in the land? And later, they're known as forever chemicals. They're in household products and firefighting foams, and they can make people sick. We'll explain the big step Colorado just took to limit them and water supplies. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. No mask, no service. That was Governor Jared Polis's clear message on Thursday when he announced a statewide mask mandate for Colorado. That executive order is now in effect as of midnight. And to talk to us about this, I'm joined by CPR's Paolo Shalsada. Hi, Paolo. Hey. Nearly 30 states have made mask wearing mandatory. What are the details of Colorado's order? So masks are now required in Colorado for anyone 10 and older when they are in public indoor spaces. That includes stores, offices, and other businesses. And are there exceptions? There are. They include scenarios like eating at a restaurant, exercising by yourself, and receiving a service that a mask would interfere with, like getting a facial, for example. Public safety personnel, like law enforcement, are exempt too. We immediately heard from listeners with questions after the mask mandate was issued. One woman asked if she has to wear a mask while she's hiking with her dog. She says she keeps one with her and puts it on if she encounters others, but otherwise doesn't wear it on the trail. So the state has stopped short of requiring masks outdoors, unless you're waiting for public transportation. But officials still recommend wearing a mask outside when you can stay at least six feet from others, especially in crowded places. So the bottom line is, when in doubt and someone's near you in public, try to wear a mask. What about people with respiratory problems who say that wearing a mask is difficult for them? Polis says anyone with a valid medical condition is also exempt from their mask requirement. But he strongly urged them to stay home as much as possible. He says those with respiratory issues and other pre-existing conditions should treat it like it's April again, when the state was under a stay-at-home order. State officials say they're also concerned about a recent rise in hospitalizations for middle-aged and older adults. And what else is happening in Colorado that led to this executive order? Colorado continues to see an uptick in COVID-19 cases, but now it's also seeing an increase in the rate of infection. And that acceleration of case numbers has officials concerned. Specifically, they looked at the data from the last week of June through the first week in July. The state's epidemiologist says at this rate, Colorado could hit its ICU capacity at hospitals in early September, with potentially a new peak in cases in October. Paolo, up until now, Governor Polis has resisted a statewide mask order, and one reason he gave is that it's difficult to enforce. So how will the state enforce this? Polis says it will essentially be considered a trespassing violation. Here's how he described it. If somebody were to run into a store naked or without a mask, uh, they are trespassing. And this gives that store the ability to call local law enforcement to enforce Uh, trespassing charge to make sure that they can keep their customers and their workers safe. On the other hand, police clarified by saying it's not all about enforcement. He says it's also important to make messaging consistent across the state. He brought up areas that already had mask mandates in place. Those areas cover about 65% of the state where people live. 
and Polis says those counties and municipalities have seen increases in cases, but that the rate of increase are lower. So this makes him believe that mask wearing works. There has already been some pushback. What are opponents of the statewide mask mandate saying? So Colorado House Minority Leader Patrick Neville spoke out right away. He pointed that the state's increase in testing as a big reason why the case count has gone up. Neville also accused the governor of going on a, quote, power trip and called the order a violation of civil liberties. And he took to Twitter to say he intends to sue over the mandate. Also, a Weld County commissioner says he won't support the order because it's up to individuals to make their own choices. And the Weld County Sheriff's Office says it will encourage voluntary compliance, but that it doesn't have the resources to actively enforce the mandate. And then what did Polis have to say about visitors who travel to Colorado? Yeah, this is interesting. State officials are concerned about the number of visitors coming here, especially from places with significant coronavirus outbreaks like Arizona, Texas, and Florida. But Polis has been adamant that you can't keep those visitors out of Colorado. So the statewide mask mandate will certainly apply to people who travel here. And Polis says the state will work with local municipalities, as well as Denver International Airport and state entry points, to inform as many visitors as possible that they need to wear masks while inside public places. Thanks so much, Paolo. Thank you. CPR's Paolo Sholceda talking about the new statewide mandate to wear masks indoors. We have a full FAQ online right now with more details about what indoor spaces will require masks. That's at CPR.org. Meantime, school districts in Colorado continue to grapple with how and when to reopen because of the pandemic. On Wednesday, Aurora Public Schools announced it's delaying the start of the fall semester by a week. Douglas County made the same decision earlier this week. Denver Public Schools, the state's largest district, is also considering delaying the beginning of its school year by a week. And when students do return to class there may be a staggered start. School districts are looking at a variety of teaching options that include in-person learning in classrooms, remote teaching, and a hybrid combination of both. When we come back, Colorado then and now. How the effects of busing to desegregate schools and redlining to separate neighborhoods based on race still resonate today. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. News changes daily, and every day, CPR and NPR bring you reliable, up-to-date information, facts and advice, news about what's happening in your state. You have access to this important coverage thanks to the generosity of members who continue to make voluntary donations. Join them. Sustain CPR for yourself and for the benefit of the thousands of listeners who rely on Colorado Public Radio every day. It's easy at CPR.org. It's been 50 years since Colorado Public Radio first went on the air, and all year long we've been looking at the state then and now. And you can't talk about the 70s without acknowledging the social turmoil that engulfed the nation that still engulfs the nation today. In 1970, Denver Public Schools had just begun busing students to different schools, sometimes clear across town, in an effort to more fully desegregate its district, something that continued well into the 90s. Another move to desegregate Colorado was officially outlawing, officially outlawing redlining. This was the racist practice of forcing communities of color into certain neighborhoods. Let's talk about both of these desegregation efforts now. Manuel Espinoza is a professor at CU Denver's School of Education and Human Development. He also lived through the busing era in Denver and has studied its impact since then. Hi, Manuel. 
How are you? Good morning. Doing well, thank you. And James Roy II works in urban planning and is the executive director of Park Hill Collective Impact, an organization that works with children in the Park Hill neighborhood to ensure they have academic and social support. He's also studied the lasting impacts of redlining on communities of color. Hi, James. Hey, how's it going? Going well. Let's set up the scene of what segregation still looked like in 1970, even though it had been outlawed six years prior. James, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. So, yeah. Um Segregation and the the legal uh, structure of segregation actually ended in the early 1900s, to which um, uh, more subversive, nuanced measures had to uh, be formed to be able to continue to segregate neighborhoods and continue uh, racist practices that shaped our neighborhoods today. Um, So when we think about redlining, it's something that actually was, was... happening after segregation was made illegal and was something that uh, the bank industry, urban planning industry, and the real estate industry combined uh, to to really uh, make sure that uh, for a number of different reasons that uh, that black uh, people stayed in certain parts of uh, of, uh, of their cities and uh, and neighborhoods. And how are those industries able to force people into specific neighborhoods? Yeah, there was uh, a lot of different measures on that. Uh, like I said, with those three industries that combined to, uh, to to make that happen, there was what was called redlining, of course, of what we're talking about today, and uh, literally a uh, red line drawn on a map to show where black people could uh, live and where they would be directed to by the real estate and banking industry. Um, so combined with the real estate and banking industry, they... The uh, agents, as well as brokers and um, and uh, financial loan uh, folks, were not able to actually lend to black families outside of redlined areas, uh, or made it just extremely difficult. And that process was outlined in nineteen, rather outlawed in nineteen sixty eight. But the effects will feel we still feel those today, and so we'll talk about that in just a moment. A little more background on what led to forced busing in the nineteen seventies. There was a Supreme Court case, Keys versus School District Number One or DPS. Manuel, what did that decision in this case entail? So, in nineteen seventy three, the United States Supreme Court rules that finds that Denver is operating a dual system, segregated dual system along racial lines. And it mandates that they must dismantle this system root and branch. And 73 is really, it's kind of like the the flashpoint. But this is a history that you have to look at at least five years prior, at the very least, going back to the Knoll Resolution in 1968 and extending all the way to 1995 when Denver is let out of the consent decree to desegregate. So so it's quite a long history, right? Not just one event, but a long-term kind of phenomenon. So with these dual systems, James, talk to me about why the schools were either predominantly white or students of color. Yeah, I think that's pretty directly attributable to segregation and redlining. Uh, when you have neighborhoods that, uh, that are pretty homogenous in race and culture, uh, the schools, of course, in those neighborhoods are going to reflect the same. And so I think it set up a situation where uh, in the education system, uh, disinvestment could be targeted uh, towards uh, communities of color. 
And Manuel, how did that affect the disparity of resources between schools? Hmm. Well, the, I guess the I guess the causal link that is being drawn that was drawn by the United States Supreme Court is that look at the racial composition of the schools and look at the outcomes, right? The achievements. And what they the inference that they that they drew was that if you look at these schools that are predominantly African American or predominantly African American and Mexican American, and and if you then look at the the achievement in terms of they were looking basically at test scores and then also some analysis of the kinds of curricula that were offered. And you'll sort of see, right? Like, okay, why why is it then? What other reason can we draw? What other reason can we, what other conclusion can we draw as to why these children are not performing as well as their quote-unquote white counterparts? Unless you believe that there are these inherent differences and ceilings on the intelligence and the capabilities of children of color, then you can only come to a certain conclusion that it's something that we do as a society. And I understand that there were mixed reactions to busing in the 70s. Manuel, I wonder if you could describe a bit of your experience when you were bused in 1977. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I was uh, I was bused from, from Five Points, 2255 Washington, to McKinley Thatcher, 1203 South Grant. So it's just like you're jumping over downtown. And you have to understand that I, when I left Ebert, which was a... For, for, you know, for all, for the definitional purposes, a segregated school, that I, in the morning, would leave the care of my Mexican mother, and I would be given over to the care of my African-American mothers and my white mothers in school. Um, when I got to McKinley Thatcher, the first day that we got there, there was a line of parents, more white folks than I'd ever seen in my life, out there with a, with a, a row of signs in front of the school. Didn't know what to expect when they got off. It felt like I couldn't, didn't even know how to read the signs at the time. When we got off, they applauded us. But this is, this was, this is one school, right, in, a, in, a, in, in quite a broad public school system. So McKinley Thatcher was, was, I think, a little bit different than other parts of the city in which maybe the reception was indifferent or perhaps even hostile. So it's really hard to say that that. Denver's response to desegregation was one thing or the other. And was there pushback in some parts of the city? There were push. There was pushback at certain parts of the city. If you look on the first day that um, the busing programs, the, the busing uh, started in Denver, which was before 1977, um, I believe at East High School, I believe on the first day of school, there was a car that was turned over and that was set on fire. Um, if you even look at back to 1969, right after the Knoll Resolution was passed and it was, and the rescission took place. Uh, I believe it was 1970, I believe, that there were more than 30 school buses that were damaged, burned out, some damaged by dynamite. Not in the American South, not in Mississippi, but in Denver, Colorado. Wow, so there are vastly different experiences depending on which school you're going to. Desegregation in Denver was lumpy. Lumpy is an interesting word to describe mm -hmm. that. Do you think that the forced busing in Denver was a success or a failure? There's at least two ways I can look I look at it. In one way I could say that it was a failure because look at the disparities in achievement that still exist to this day. Again, the mandate was to dismantle desegregation root and branch. And the fact that we don't have parity um, in Denver public schools at the moment, I think can signal the fact that it was 
in large part a, a failure. Maybe there's another way to look at it. Imagine Denver 100 years from now and think about Keys versus Denver School District number one with an ellipsis, three dots. Its success is still in the balance. Perhaps in the future we'll be able to look back and say that this was Denver's baby steps, its first steps toward what Dr. King called the beloved community, perhaps. Perhaps. We don't know yet. And I understand that you're actually looking into the data and also how your peers from that time are doing. What are you hoping to learn? Was Denver bettered? Was the city of Denver bettered by the desegregation efforts? And one way to look at that is look at the lives that the children of Keys led. What did they become? What kind of stamp did they leave on the city of Denver? Was the city, is the city of Denver better for, for desegregation? There's one thing to look at the numbers and achievement scores, which are in some sense suspect anyway from the beginning. But look at the lives that people led. I think that will give you perhaps a, a more accurate or a truer kind of measure as to whether desegregation in Denver was something of a success. So let's talk about the differences between desegregation and integration, because I think that this is what was at the heart of the Keys decision and the busing efforts. And you've already touched on this. You could argue integration is still a problem today, right? James, I'll have you go first. Yeah. Um, you know, from the legacy of what has been created for, by, uh, you know, what I've been talking about redlining, it's uh, a long, you know, long time that has gone by almost, it's been 102 years since segregation was outlawed. Uh, and when you look at what the impact it, it has had on our communities, uh, along with the redlining that occurred after that until 1968, um, you see the uh, the disinvestment from communities and everything that has really kind of uh, put uh, the economic hardship on on a community uh, still impacting neighborhoods today. And so, for integration today, I think it like I said, it uh, links directly to that and um, is something that right now is is nuanced because laws have arguably achieved equality, but they've not achieved equity. And so when we think about uh, correcting the the mistakes of the past, I think that integration and opportunity is something that we really need to, to think about. And when Manuel said uh, to look at the experiences and the stories and the lives of, of people, I really resonate with that uh, strongly. I think it's definitely something to to look at when we're thinking about uh, what solutions look like, what uh, progress and the future can be. And Manuel? Well, the difference from my perspective, I'm, I was educated as an anthropologist of education, and the difference for me is that, you know, when you look at, when you think about desegregation of schools, we're, we're think, talking about getting to a state in which there are no longer any racially identifiable schools, and there is not any sort of set formula as to what percentages constitute that. It's really kind of a, you know, it's a mix of numbers and it's a mix of reputation, right? Integration for me is something different. I think it's something that we have achieved a lot more rarely. That's social cohesion, right? That's different. That's different amongst people than simply having schools that are not racially identifiable. And we've had that at moments, but it's fleeting in the United States and in Denver. 
James, let's talk a little bit more about redlining because those effects are still felt today. We've talked about what it's like in the 1970s in segregated schools. In what ways today can we still see those effects? Yeah, I think we see those effects today when you when you notice that uh, certain neighborhoods are still um, economically struggling. Um, when you and now, of course, everything has become a lot more complex uh, today due to gentrification. And now, uh, I'm sure every, you know folks have heard, or maybe you haven't, but. It, through a report that just recently came out, Denver is the second most gentrified uh, city in the country right now. And so, when we think about, you know, what, what, you know, what the uh, environment was to create, or the conditions were to create that, uh, I think they strongly come from the effects of redlining and the economic impact that it had on communities at that time, um, and. When we think about it even further, I think the the generational impact from uh, generational economic impact has uh, actually been the the uh, the toughest thing that you see in communities and with with people being displaced, whether it's involuntarily or voluntarily, um, within their residential neighborhoods. That uh, we're seeing this this. This thing that really is just changing neighborhoods extremely fast, um, and it's being felt. And so, you know, I think in, in really uh, understanding that the impact that that uh, has long had on on our uh, communities, that's it's, it's still being felt today when we see those changes uh, coming through. Talk to me more about generational wealth, because I think that's really important here. Families lost a lot of wealth when they were forced from one portion of the city into a specific neighborhood, and that still matters now. Yeah, I think, you know, along with redlining, there was a uh, practice called blockbusting in the past, um, where uh, as soon as black residents were arriving on a a residential block, um, realtors would uh, spread propaganda to scare um, white uh, residents out of their properties and into selling quickly. And so um, as black residents came into uh, areas, additionally, the property value would decline. Um, so when you see uh, that, that type of thing happening, the, uh, the, the community wealth that is, uh, is built through real estate, which is one of the number one ways to build that type of wealth, uh, is, was being stolen as it was being purchased. And uh, on top of that, we also had a number of different housing um, uh, acts that were, including the Homestead Act, that, was, uh, that, have been ben- that has only been benefited by, uh, or primarily benefited by, uh, white residents, white uh, home buying residents, and largely uh, missed out by uh, people of color. Urban planner and executive director of Park Hill Collective Impact, James Roy II, and Manuel Espinoza, a CU Denver professor in the School of Education and Human Development. After the break, what impact is Colorado's Neil Gorsuch having on the U.S. Supreme Court? We'll get some insight. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
obviously, you know, you've had a really long relationship with marijuana. It's something people know about you. Why do you like it? Keeps me from killing people. Oh, okay. That's a good reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Anne Marie Awad, and this is Willie Nelson. We need to end the federal ban on cannabis. On the season two premiere of the CPR podcast On Something, it's America's most beloved pot smoker. On Something is on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. The United States Supreme Court's latest term, which wrapped up last week, will be known for several blockbuster rulings. The court issued major decisions that upheld abortion rights, blocked President Trump from ending DACA, ruled discrimination against the LGBTQ community as unconstitutional, and said Trump does not have absolute power to block the release of his tax returns. Colorado has a native son of sorts on the bench. Associate Justice Neil Gorsuch was born in Denver and spent his early youth here. Later, after he established an impressive legal career, including stints clerking on the Supreme Court, he was appointed to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is based in Denver, before being appointed to the nation's highest court by Trump in 2017. Joining us to talk about the court's momentous term and Justice Gorsuch's role in several major decisions is David Savage. He's a longtime Supreme Court reporter for the Los Angeles Times. David, welcome back to the program. Uh, good to speak with you. David, let's start by briefly talking about the several major cases that came out of the court this past term. The rulings will impact big issues for years to come. First, abortion rights. What was the gist of the court's ruling? Well, the court was deciding on a Louisiana abortion clinic law. The law would have required every doctor who performs abortions to get admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. This is one of these regulations that, you know, ordinary people, I think, wouldn't think about, wouldn't think it was a big deal. But it turned out that it was very hard for these doctors to get admitting privileges. A lot of the hospitals didn't want to be associated with an abortion doctor. And plus, there's almost never patients being sent to the hospital. So it uh, four years ago, the court struck down a law in Texas, same law, because it was going to shut down about three quarters of the abortion clinics in the state. And the court said then, <clears throat> this is not something that helps the health of women. This is actually harming a lot of women. Louisiana had the same law. A, a very conservative court upheld it. And so the Supreme Court was forced to decide, are we going to stick with what we said four years ago? Are we going to uphold this law and sort of, I think, go down the road of slowly unraveling the right to abortion, sort of case by case? If you if you and I had talked in October, I would have said, yeah, that's probably what they're going to do. There's five conservative votes. But uh, John Roberts, the chief justice, joined with the four liberals to say, no, uh, as a matter of precedent, I'm going to stick with what we said four years ago and therefore strike down the Louisiana law. Small case, but a big message about precedent and abortion. Another large case, DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. The Trump administration argued that Obama administration established the program illegally. The court ruled against Trump. What did the majority opinion say? Well, this was John Roberts again. He was the deciding vote. Um, there was not a lot of big law in this case. It was not a matter of the Constitution or that Trump couldn't do this as a matter of immigration law. But there's a law that goes back to the 1940s that basically said if the government's going to change, make an abrupt change in regulations and administration, they've got to give the public an explanation of why they're doing it. What's the reasons for this big change? And basically, he said 
they never came up with a, a, a good, valid reason. This program was legal. Uh, Obama could do it. And, the, and so he said they never gave a valid reason, and therefore we're going to stand in the way and block the repeal. And then on President Trump's taxes, the court issued two rulings, sort of a split decision. One ruling said House Democrats can't get access to Trump's financial records for now until lower courts weigh in. The other ruling allows federal prosecutors in New York to access Trump's tax records, rather tax returns, and allow a grand jury to see them to determine if Trump broke any campaign finance laws over hush money payments to adult film stars. These rulings pertain to more than Trump's tax records, right? Yes. I mean, in fact, the taxes were a small part of it. The subpoenas from the House asked for like 10 years of financial records for Trump and basically all the members of his family. The grand jury in New York wants a lot of uh, uh, records that go way beyond taxes. I think you described it well, though. It was a split decision, a hard thing to write about because they sort of went one way in one case and said, no, Congress hadn't really explained why they needed this. In the other case, they said grand juries by tradition and history uh, gather records when they're deal- doing investigations. They keep them confidential. The president has no immunity. He, he's not immune from the law. Therefore, this subpoena is OK. And uh, but it's not clear that the public will ever see anything that comes out of this, because even if Trump's accountants turn it over, it's to be kept confidential confidentially with the grand jury. Then LGBTQ rights. This brings us front and center with Justice Gorsuch. Let's listen to Justice Gorsuch as he questions a lawyer representing a petitioner in the case during oral arguments back in October. Is it idiosyncratic for a transgender person to prefer a bathroom that's different than the one of their biological sex? Is it idiosyncratic for a transsexual person to wish to dress in a different style of dress than his or her biological no. sex. Okay. So the answer to your question is that the question then at the end of the day, if I understand it, is that those are acts of discrimination under Title VII as you understand it. David, in June, Gorsuch issued an opinion in that case that sent shockwaves into conservative circles, right? I sure did. Um, <laughs> the one thing, you know, conservatives thought uh, when Trump appointed Neil Gorsuch, they were getting a very smart, very conservative, very reliably conservative guy. And they got most of that right. He's a very smart guy, uh, a guy who's a, a real law person, believes in the law, kept kept talking at the confirmation hearings about he believes that judges should follow the text of the law. We shouldn't say what the law, what we wanted to say, we should follow the text and follow the original intent of the Constitution. Conservatives were, I think, confident that that sounds conservative, and it will be conservative, but it turned out here it is one of the very biggest cases, sort of culture war type cases, where Gorsuch said, look, the 1964 Civil Rights Act said employers may not discriminate based on sex. When what is it other than sex discrimination if the employer says we're going to fire some person because of his or her sexual orientation, or I'm going to uh, dismiss some person who's uh, transgender. Uh, he, uh, he, uh, she worked for us for 15 years and was a valued employee. Uh, she returned to work after uh, several weeks away as, as a, a male. That person is fired. That sure looks like sex discrimination. 
And uh, I was really impressed that uh, Gorsuch had said that's what he was going to do, follow the text of the law, and that's what he did. And as you correctly said, it sent a sort of shudder through the conservative ranks. So what you're describing is this independent streak in his opinions and in his dissents, as you just mentioned about the LGBTQ rights opinion. And we can under, what can we understand about Justice Gorsuch based on his writings? Well, he is, as you said, smart, independent, and very much inclined to follow the law. And he's very sort of proud of the fact that he's going to look at the law, decide what it says, and basically rule that way and say it's not our job to decide whether that's the right good law or bad law. Um, but it's very hard to then to translate to say, okay, well, what does that mean in the whole run of cases? Because, as, as I say, he's sort of an independent uh, guy. He doesn't – he's very different from Brett Kavanaugh, uh, um, uh, Trump's other appointee. They're both very conservative guys. They they went to the same high school together. They they sort of served in the Justice Department under George W. Bush. You would think these are two peas in a pod. But um, Kavanaugh is a very much of a guy who cares about the result and the impact of a decision. And Gorsuch almost goes the other way and says, it's not our job to say what people are going to think about this or what's the impact. It's our job to say what the law is, what it means when Congress passed this law. And so um, I find it he's an interesting, smart guy, and it's very hard to predict, uh, you know, if you have 10 big cases coming up in the air, how Gorsuch will view them. Gorsuch also wrote the majority opinion for another decision. He cited with the liberal justices in a 5-4 ruling of but that, that about half of the land in Oklahoma is within the Creek Reservation because the federal government must honor its treaties with the Muscogee Creek Nation. Before Gorsuch was appointed to the high court, he served on the 10th U.S. Circuit of Appeals. Its jurisdiction includes Oklahoma, Colorado, and other Western states. How did his time on that court likely inform his decision here? Well, I sort of think I should be asking somebody from Colorado to explain that rather than me. But my belief is that, uh, as, as your question suggests, if you spend enough time looking at the law in, in that area, looking at the laws that Congress passed in the early 1800s for uh, reservations and Indians, you think, oh, wow, uh, it sure looks like Congress said um, these are treaties uh, and the Indian tribes will have these reservation rights. But later on, that's sort of over time, we changed our mind and uh, allowed states to do certain things. And Gorsuch, I think, is very much was inclined to say, wait a minute, these are a series of uh, broken promises uh, and we ought to uh, stand behind the law. I I happened to look this morning at the, this. Gorsuch is also an excellent writer. Here's the first line of that opinion. On the far end of the Trail of Tears was a promise. And then he explains the, the Creek uh, people being transferred from Georgia to Alabama, the government giving them treaties that say that forever this will be your reservation land. And um, there's a separate federal law that said, that's called the Major Crimes Act, that said um, major crimes on Indian land will be prosecuted by the federal government, not by the states. And so this was a case involving a Native American who was prosecuted by Oklahoma. And if you just look at what the law said then and how that works now, um, Gorsuch said, 
um, he, he said, today we're asked whether the land these treaties promise remains an Indian reservation for purposes of federal criminal law. Because Congress has not said otherwise, we hold the government to its word. So he basically said, that's what the law was in the 1830s. Congress has never changed it. And that's the law today. That's what we, the Supreme Court, are going to say. And it's quite a remarkable um, decision. And as I mentioned, uh, uh, Kavanaugh, Chief Justice Roberts basically said, you're kidding. This hasn't been the understanding for 100 years that Oklahoma was created as a state. Oklahoma can do all these things. And Gorsuch said, no, that's not what the law was, and it's not the law today. So quite a remarkable decision. Police brutality has been a front and center issue in America these past months after the killing of George Floyd. A police brutality case has not come before the court, but now that states like Colorado have passed laws that will end qualified immunity for police, meaning that they could personally be sued for negligence, other justices are calling for an examination of qualified immunity. Where would Gorsuch fall on the question? Well, the first, the short answer is I don't know, but I do think there's a good possibility that he would be with um, Thomas and uh, Justice Sotomayor because Congress, after the Civil War, basically said if a government official acting under color of law violates your constitutional rights, you have a right to sue. That's what the law is. That's what the law has always been. The Supreme Court sort of made up this qualified immunity test and said, no, no, that's really not true uh, because police can't be sued. And Gorsuch, I think, is very much inclined to say, no, that's what the law was. That's what the law is. And, and I'm not going to go down the road of extending these immunities that are sort of made up by judges. David, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's good to speak with you. David Savage has been the Supreme Court reporter for the Los Angeles Times since 1986. They're known as forever chemicals because they linger in the environment. What's more, they're linked to a range of health problems, and for the first time, Colorado has set limits on how much of these chemicals can be in our water. I'm like sitting here like, I'm like crying. I'm like... Oh, my God, they're listening. (laughs) That's Liz Rosenbaum of Fountain Valley Clean Water Coalition reacting to news this week of the new rule. CPR's Sam Brash had reached her on the phone. And Sam's here with us now. Hi, Sam. Hey, Avery. Explain why Rosenbaum was almost beside herself. So Rosenbaum lives in in Fountain, Colorado, near Colorado Springs, and that's really been ground zero for the state's growing pollution crisis around PFAS. So in 2016, some tests revealed that these chemicals were in their drinking water for her community and other communities nearby. Later tests found the same chemicals in these people's blood. And she organized a coalition in response to clean up the community's water, to push for regulation. She's in, is running for state legislature at this point. And this rule was a huge achievement, achievement for her and activists like her. They teamed up with environmental groups and they got this done. And before we get to the details of the new rule, briefly help us understand what these forever chemicals are. Sure. So they're a very common ingredient in things like firefighting foam, nonstick surfaces, cleaning products. Uh, They were developed by 3M and then widely used by DuPont. 
and they've been on the mind of a lot of people around Peterson Air Force Base for a while now. But they captured national attention when Hollywood turned its spotlight on this whole issue last year. Uh, the movie Dark Waters with, you know, the one and only Mark Ruffalo playing a real-life attorney who took on the industry. There is a man-made chemical. It was invented during the Manhattan Project. It repelled the elements, especially water. So they used it to make the first ever waterproof coating for tanks. It was indestructible. Then some companies thought, hey, why just the battlefield? Why not bring this chemical into American homes? DuPont was one of those companies. So they took this chemical, PFOA, they renamed it C8, and they made their own impenetrable coating, but not for tanks, for pants. They called it Teflon, a shining symbol of American ingenuity made right here in the USA in Parkersburg, West Virginia. But right from the start, something wasn't right. And a growing body of evidence shows that something isn't right when it comes to PFAS and PFOA and human health. Uh, Exposure has now been linked to cancer, liver damage, and fertility issues. So what does the new rule do? Uh, Avery, I wish that was a simple question. (laughs) It's not. It's really complicated policy, but I think the simplest explanation is it lets the state set limits for PFAS in wastewater permits. So if a company or a wastewater district is putting water back into streams or waterways, the state can say, hey, you got to test for these chemicals and the levels can't be higher than this amount. And why not, or what, does it limit the forever chemicals at the source or by the time it gets to the wastewater treatment plants? It's really focused on, on when the water is going back into our streams and waterways. That's actually why it got a lot of objections from cities, districts, utilities. They don't want local governments to get stuck with the cost of cleaning these things up. Um, but the state says that this is just like a piece of a larger PFAS action plan uh, to clean up these things. And that whole action plan is also going to include going after the actual sources of these chemicals, places like airfields, refineries, manufacturers. So why not just eliminate them from products? Uh, You can try, but, you know, they're in all kinds of products. And, you know, as that dark waters clip alluded to, they're, they're really useful. So they're based around this carbon fluoride bond, which is one of the strongest uh, in nature anywhere. And that structure makes it so that the molecules are really good at repelling not just water, but like oil too. So that's why they're so good at like putting out fires um, that are, you know, fueled by jet fuel, things like that. Um, but that same quality makes them these forever chemicals. They don't just break down in a normal way in the environment. You know, the more they pollute, the more they build up. The more they get into your body, the more they build up in your body. So they're a really big problem, and and they are really hard to get rid of. And if these are getting into water systems... Couldn't you just slap a filter on to get get it out? Uh, maybe. Um, so a Brita filter isn't going to do it, right? Like something you pick up at Target. Uh, but there are things you can do that are much more intensive, like reverse osmosis filters or activated carbon filters. These are usually things you need a plumber or a company to install, and they can be hundreds or even thousands of dollars. Beyond the communities near Colorado Springs that were hardest hit, how big a problem are these forever chemicals in the state? 
Yeah, I mean, afraid to say that this stuff is everywhere. So the state recently did a large survey with money from the state legislature to find this stuff wherever they could. They checked streams, water systems, groundwater sources, and all of the streams and waterways had some level of these chemicals, but not above what the EPA suggests is unsafe. Uh, No drinking water tested above that threshold, at least as far as the state could find. You know, but scientists are wondering if that suggestion from the EPA, which is 70 parts per trillion, is too high. Uh, and some states like Vermont have actually set far lower standards uh, for what they think is safe. That that state says 20 parts per trillion. And why is the state setting this rule rather than the federal government? I mean, I'd say the state is setting the limit because the EPA has not, right? Like, usually this works where the EPA sets the limits on contaminants and the states enforce those limits, right? The EPA is the one interpreting the science. Uh, But the agency has just been bogged down on this complex bureaucratic rulemaking around all this. You know, the House, uh, the U.S. Congress House, has passed legislation in January to speed up that process. But the Senate hasn't touched that legislation So in the meantime, states are feeling like this is a problem, it's a growing crisis, and they need to do what they can. Thank you so much, Sam. Anytime, Avery. Sam Brash is on CPR's climate and environment team. We talked about the new limits on so-called forever chemicals in Colorado. We're bringing you stories of healthcare providers as they navigate life and work during the pandemic. Nurses and doctors aren't the only ones who have seen big changes, so have midwives. CPR's Stina Sieg has this story from the Western Slope. My name is Gina Smith. I'm a certified nurse midwife, and I live in Grand Junction. She remembers the night she saw how quickly COVID-19 was changing things. I think it was in March... And I had brought a woman to the hospital that needed to have a baby at the hospital. And it was the first night that everything just locked down. And we had brought her and her partner, of course, and her mother to the hospital. And we had to send her mother away. New restrictions meant only one support person could be there. There was a lot of tears. It felt... um, It it was just really sad. And surreal. I mean, it just felt so strange. And the hospital was so extremely quiet. And, yeah, things have been different from then on. Even at Bloomin' Baby's birth center, where Smith works and most of her clients give birth, she now spends all day in a mask and has her temperature checked whenever she enters the building. But those are minor things compared to what Smith misses most. I'm used to showing that I care by, you know, physical touch, holding their hand, touching their arm, giving them a hug, making eye contact with them, which I still do, but they can't see my mouth and that's half my face. So Smith has been pondering how to convey her feelings in this new world. We're just going to have to tell them that we care about you and we love you. And we want to take the best care of you that we possibly can. Even though that care has to look different than ever before. We're asking people not to bring their children, which is sad for us. And a stark contrast to pre-pandemic times, when Bloomin' Babies had no limit on how many people could attend a birth. 
Smith describes this one large family she's worked with several times in one of her favorite birth memories before COVID. Sisters, brothers, grandmas, you know, aunts and uncles and little kids and cousins and everybody, they come. They all come. We were there at the birth center for, oh goodness, at least 24 hours in labor. And you know, not one of them left. For 24 hours, not one of them left. They were all at the birth center. We all felt victorious because it was a tribal event, and and we all supported her, and we all took care of her um, together. Birth is a family event, and it kind of breaks our heart to not have the family there, you know, and we just can't wait until we can have them back. And I don't know when that's going to happen. But there is a silver lining to all of this. Smith thinks the pandemic has given midwifery more visibility. And it's pushed out-of-hospital options more into the mainstream. Births have doubled at Bloomin' Babies. And Smith keeps hearing the same thing. I didn't even know about you guys until the pandemic. Like, they just started to seek other options. And everyone started to think in it a different way about all kinds of things. A more holistic way. And Smith thinks that's going to stay with people, even after the pandemic is over. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. You can read this and other stories about what it's like to be on the front lines of the coronavirus in Colorado at CPR.org. That's it for Colorado Matters today. Thanks to our executive producer, Carl Bielek, producers Andrea Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, Alexandra McMahon, and with help today from Phil Maravilla. Production team Michael Hughes, Shane Rumsey, and Natasha Watts. I'm Avery Lill. My co-host is Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.